What were you thinking? That's a phrase I learned from my father. <laughs> he used to say it to me on many occasions. What were you thinking? When I did something that was incredibly illogical, exceptionally dumb, <laughs> when I allowed the stupidity of my soul to be revealed in my actions, I would hear those words from Dad. This phrase was actually a TV series made in Canada. It was, uh, the premise was there's always one bad, embarrassing house in every neighborhood. So they'd find that house painted purple and they'd go to the people and say, what were you thinking? Your neighbors are embarrassed. Could we renovate your house? And uh, I don't know if that series is still uh, going. I imagine many people were offended when you came to their front door and said, what were you thinking? There was a book written by that title. What was I thinking? William Helmrich, uh, 2011, and the subtitle is The Dumb Things People Do and How to Avoid Them. Well, that's an interesting book. It's, it talks a lot about celebrities and politicians and the dumb things they do. That's why the book is so big. But it, it also talks about others like us who maybe don't have the notoriety but also end up doing some of the same foolish things. What were you thinking? Reader's Digest a few years ago uh, used to, and maybe they still do, they had a series, uh, an ongoing article about uh, dumb criminals or stupid criminals. I can't remember what the title of it was. Remember that? Uh, For instance, uh, the two guys in Baltimore who decided to rob a gun store after hours. Uh, They brought their pickup truck to the gun store. It had bars on the window, so they took a chain and put it on the bars and put the other end of the chain on their bumper and floored it. (laughs) and the bars held and the bumper came off and they were so embarrassed they fled in a panic (laughs) left their bumper chained to the window with their license plate on the bumper (laughs) police come the next day and arrest them and they say to them what were you thinking (laughs) or the guy in Michigan who robbed $300 worth of knives from Meyer. And the security people were in pursuit and he was running away and he tripped and fell and seriously stabbed himself. (laughs) They arrested him, took him to the hospital and the doctor says to him, what were you thinking? Uh, Or this lady driving a Lexus who uh, decided that those orange barrels don't refer to her. (laughs) Or this man, I have to get a man in here, driving a cement truck. Right next to this, there is an open driveway. And he tries to go through. What were you thinking? The dumb things people do and how to avoid them. By the way, I think this is a great title for Exodus chapter 32. What were you thinking? It is the chapter where the people of Israel make a golden calf and bow down and worship it right after God gave them the Ten Commandments. In fact, we we do need to remind ourselves of the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20. They're on uh, the foot of Mount Sinai. They see, as Moses goes up, the cloud of God coming down. There's thunder, there's lightning, and a voice speaks from the cloud. And my best understanding is part of that voice was declaring the Ten Words 
the Ten Commandments as we see them in Exodus 20. The people heard God speak the Ten Commandments. And here's how it starts out. God spoke all of these words and he said, I'm the Lord your God. The one who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall make no, no idol. Any image or form of what you think God is. From anything in heaven above or anything on the earth or anything in the waters beneath. You need to understand that you shouldn't bow down before these images because they misrepresent me. I'm formless. I'm spirit. God says, and I'm jealous. I love you as a husband ought to love his wife and will not share her with another. If you disobey me, I will punish your sin. In fact, the sins of the fathers will be punished down to the third and fourth generation. But if you obey me because you love me, then I will bless you. And that will go to thousands of generations. Notice how grace abounds far greater than the punishment even for sin. So when we get to Exodus chapter 24, Moses has taken multiple trips up and down the mountain. And in chapter 24, there is this confirming of the covenant. There's a sacrifice. There's a blood offering to establish the old covenant with blood. Moses goes up to the mountain with Joshua. God comes down. And the people have said repeatedly, everything you told us to do, we will do. Remember that? Chapter 19, repeated again in 24, repeated, uh, I think, three times throughout this context. Everything you tell us to do, no problem, we're going to do it. So as Moses and Joshua go up the mountain, Aaron and Hur are left as responsible leaders for the two million plus people who are left down in the plain. And the last verse of chapter 24 says that Moses is up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. What's happening? Well, among other things, as God gives laws, he is giving him the Ten Commandments in stone, written by the finger of God. You see, before they just had it audibly. Now they're going to have it recorded and inscripturated, written for them. But Moses has never been gone that long, as far as we can tell. The other trips were rather quick, up and down, up and down. But this one was long, and it got the people worried. And that's where we find ourselves in chapter 32 of Exodus in verse 1. And the first thing we notice is this violation where the people break God's law. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. Notice this sin is brought about by impatience, as many of our sins are, are brought out by that feeling of, I want what I want, and I want it now. Or I want what you want, I just want it now. You see, they wanted to go to the promised land. We need gods to go before us. And as of Moses, man, he's never been gone this long before. And maybe he was killed by the fire on the mountain. Or maybe he's abandoned us and we're left all alone. 
Or maybe he got lost and can't find his way back. Maybe he has somehow been kidnapped. We don't care what the reason is. He's not here, and we got to get moving, so make us other gods. Gods that will go before us. We don't know what's happened to this fellow Moses. And by the way, their ter- the terms they use are uh, terms almost of derision. They certainly lack respect for the man who put his life on the line to deliver them from bondage in Egypt. So verse 2, Aaron answers them. There's no mention of her in this chapter. Aaron and her were responsible to watch over the people. Jewish tradition says her stood up to the people of God and said, don't do this, and they killed him. Aaron, intimidated by that situation, acquiesced. Now, I don't know if that's true. That's Jewish tradition. But what we read of is Aaron's blunder. Verse 2. He answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. And by the way, if you're talking about two and a half million people, that's quite a haul. This is part of the loot that they took when they left Egypt. They gave it to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Now think about that for a moment. He gathered the resources. He put some thought into it before the action. Gathered the resources. Started a fire. Made a mold. Liquefied the gold poured it into the mold, broke the mold, and with a fashioning tool, made it into the best calf he could find. In fact, the Hebrew word egal literally means bull, not calf. The idea is, this is probably a connection to Baal worship, the cult of the bull. The bull had always been a a symbol for religions because it was strong and And it spoke of fertility, especially in Baal worship. And we're told in the book of Ezekiel that the people of God, when they came out of Egypt, took idols with them. And so now it's like, you know, we want gods like Egypt. We don't know what's happened to Moses, so give us a God who will go before us. And after the bull was made, Aaron said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Here they are. By the way, that will be the mantra that is used by Jeroboam, who leads the entire race into idolatry, the father of idolatry for the Hebrew people. Jeroboam would say, Behold your gods, and point to two bulls as he introduced Baal worship. In the land of Israel. When Aaron saw this, verse 5, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival. So the next day, the people rose up early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. And afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and they got up to indulge in revelry. They sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. Wow, this is 
full-blown cult worship, isn't it? You've got a statue. You've, you've got dancing, ceremonial dancing. You've got the festival. You've got the sacrifices. You've got an altar. And the people were thinking most likely of Baal or some other god, but Aaron was thinking this is a good way to do Yahweh worship. Look at verse 5. Let's have a festival with the, with the idol, with the bull, and it'll be a festival to Yahweh. Please understand that false worship is not just worshiping a false god. False worship includes worshiping the true God in the wrong way. And that's exactly what is happening, at least from Aaron's perspective. He somehow wants to legitimize this into Jehovah worship. And they were told, I think it's in chapter 23, about the three festivals. And now Aaron introduces the festival of the bull. And when it says the people sat down to eat and drink, that's innocent enough. But when it says they rose up to play, the Hebrew word is clearly talking about sexual immorality as a part of religious ceremony. That's the kind of thing that was going on. The next part of this chapter is the indignation of God himself. God's justice is aroused. His anger is justified. He said if you sin, it's going to be punished even to the third and fourth generation. What were you guys thinking? I said, no idols. They made an idol. What were you thinking? And we are prone to read this text and say, boy, I'm glad we're not this bad. Did you know that the Apostle Paul, when he was speaking to the Corinthians, uses this text to say this is just like the church of Jesus Christ today? Yeah, we are. John Calvin used to say the human heart is an idol factory. We constantly make gods for ourselves. And we're more sophisticated today. We don't burn down gold and fashion it into a bull. We know we've got other gods, more respectable idols that the populace has approved of. And sometimes we even say we're going to worship our God and follow Jesus too. And that's false worship. And God is angry. Verse 7 The Lord said to Moses, go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt. Hey, did you notice God changed those pronouns? I mean, it used to be your, my people that I brought up out of Egypt. That's what it said in Exodus 20. Now it's your people, Moses. God's not passing the buck. This is what God is doing. It appears he is disowning his people. That's serious. God is saying, I've had enough of these guys. That's what the law says. You sin, you die. Go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. Sin always corrupts us. It defiles us. It introduces a spiritual cancer that will go through the whole body and destroy our life. The people are corrupt. They've been so quick to turn away. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. 
prone to leave the God I love? This is us. Prone so quickly to turn away from what I've commanded. Was it just a few weeks ago? Maybe a couple months ago? I said, no idols. And now they're making idols. They've said, these are the gods that brought you out of Egypt. Verse 9, I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. What does that metaphor mean, stiff-necked? Well, if you're a farmer with livestock, you probably know what that means. If you ride horses, you know what that means. It's the ox who, when he fills the tug of the robe, will not go in the direction he's supposed to go in, but with a stiff neck continues to go on the path he's chosen. It's the horse, when it feels the gentle tug of the rider wanting to go left, says, no, I'm going straight. First time I ever rode a horse, I got on one of those trails, you know, for beginners. That was a mistake. And the horse simply wanted to get back to the barn. He knew it was an hour ride. We'd been into the ride for 25 minutes. He was tired of it. He knew I was no cowboy, and he was going back. We were all supposed to stop at a rest stop. Toby, I remember the horse's name. And we're going, and here's the rest stop, and I pull Toby in. Now, this is seventh grade, and I'm trying to impress all the ladies as well as everyone else, you know, that I know how to ride a horse. I've never been on one. And I'm pulling Toby's head, and there's the rest stop, and he says, uh-uh, I'm going to the barn. I know this path takes me to the barn. I pulled his head so far that we started going into the woods, and he wouldn't turn. And he just went right back. Wish I could have shot old Toby, but I didn't. (laughs) That's what stiff neck is. I don't care, God, what you want me to do. I'm going this way. Now, we'll just skip over that because we don't need to be talked about being stiff necked or stubborn people. So we'll just get on to the rest of the text. I'm sure Um, you have that all taken care of. Look at verse 10. This is the shocker. God says to Moses, Leave me alone. So that my anger may burn against them and destroy them. And then, Moses, I will make you into a great nation. Are you up for it, Moses? I mean, just let me wipe these people out. You're the mediator of these people. You're the shepherd of Israel. I've called you to be the go-between. Now, Just agree with me on this, Moses. Let my anger come down unfiltered, and I will wipe them out. And then, Moses, you and I will start over. It won't be the people of Abraham. It'll be Father Moses. How does that sound? This was a test. But understand this. In every test, there is a choice to obey God or disobey, right? Which means that in every test there is a corresponding temptation. That's why in the, in the original language, in the New Testament, the Greek, there's only one word for test or temptation. The context tells you which one is being used. Did you know that God never tempts you to sin, but he does test you? He tested Abraham to see if Abraham really loved him when he was going to offer up his son Isaac. Do you remember that? That was a test. But in every test there is also a temptation because there's a choice. We can disobey God and that's sin. And the devil is the one who interjects the temptation. 
and tries to draw us away. In a trial, God wants to perfect us. In a temptation, the devil wants to destroy us, and they're often mixed together. They're both here, trial and temptation. You say, well, why would God talk like this? This is what is called, in this section of Scripture, an anthropomorphism. Anthro is man. Anthropos, anthropology, it's the Greek word for man. And morphe is form. So it's taking the human form, the human language, and applying it to God so that we can better understand who He is. For instance, Isaiah 59 says, The Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor His ear too heavy that He cannot hear. But your sins have separated you from God, and He has turned His face away from you. Hand, ear, and face. God doesn't have any of those. God is a spirit. Well, why does the Bible say He has those? That's called a metaphor. That's called figurative language. If you come to the Bible... With a mindless literalism, you are going to get into false doctrine. Some of the Bible is written in poetry, and you've got to understand the genre, the style of the language. God's just saying, even though I don't have these faculties, I'm putting it in human language so you can understand. I see, I hear, I turn, my hand is powerful to act. And that's what you've got here in this section of Scripture. This is kind of putting this in human language. God is testing Moses to see if he's going to be faithful. Or will he abandon his shepherd role, his mediator calling, and go for the prominence of Father Moses? Hey, that would have been tempting, don't you think? Let's start over. Have you ever wanted to start over? Have you ever said... You know, you're a teacher, and you say to, that, the, say to yourself, if I could just get rid of these students, man, get the right ones, we could have a great class. If we could just start over. There's probably been a parent or two who said, man, if I could just start over with having different kids, I'd be a better parent. Many a pastor leaves his pastorate because somewhere in his own heart he's saying, the problem is with the people, not me, and if I can just get another church... And then you'll watch me rise. Moses had had been upset with these people a time or two. What am I going to do with these people, Lord? And God said they're stiff-necked. And Moses could have said, all right, I'm done with them. Let's go. But that's not what he did. And we go from indignation to intercession. Here's the heart of the passage And it's going to come up twice. In verse 11, Moses, instead of saying, I agree, let's start over, he sought the favor of the Lord. Oh, Lord, why should your anger burn against your people, the ones you brought out of Egypt? Lord, number one, you've established a relationship with these people. You are the one that brought them out of Egypt, Lord. You've done many mighty miracles. You've done a lot to deliver these people. Why give up on them now? Secondly, verse 12, what are the Egyptians going to say? Well, he just took them out in the wilderness to wipe them off the face of the earth. Lord, what will they say? What kind of reputation will you get? Thirdly, 
Lord, verse 13, remember your word, your covenant promises to Abraham and Isaac and Israel. Remember what you said? I'm going to make them a great nation. Numerous as the stars in the sky. Remember that, Lord? And verse 14 says, God relented. Some of your translations have the word repent. God repented. That is so unfortunate. Because we think of the word repentance with our English definition. Repentance is to realize you've done something wrong and you're sorry for your wrong action and you want to turn and do something different. And we think that's what the word repent means and we now apply it to God. God realizes he's done something wrong and he's changing his mind. There is a theology called open theism that basically says God has given up his omniscience and he's surprised about things that happen just as much as you are. Oh, wow, bad snow this morning. That's going to affect church. Didn't see that coming. That's kind of open theism. What a weak God you end up with. No, this is human language simply to show that when God responds when God works with his people he knows exactly what he's going to do in fact Moses was praying what God wanted to happen Moses is never more like Christ than when he gets in line with God's will and says Lord this is what this is what's true to your character your promises your reputation on planet earth so people will know that you are God And all the work that you've done with your people. Moses praised the promises of God. And God says, Moses, that's what I was hoping you would do. That's human language. God knew what Moses would do. That's what I wanted you to do. It was a test. And Moses passed the test. At least twice in the New Testament, we see that Jesus gave the impression that he was just going to walk right by his disciples. Once on the road to Emmaus, another time in the Sea of Galilee. And yet the disciples cried out, Lord, don't leave us. And that's exactly what the Lord wanted them to do. Did you know that God sometimes gives the impression that he doesn't care? Or sometimes gives you the impression that he is gone and absent? Have you ever felt that he's abandoned you? Every Christian has felt that at one time or another. That's a test. Are you going to cling to the promises of God and cry out for God to fulfill his word? That's exactly what God wants you to do. And Moses passed the test. Look at verse 14. God relents. He doesn't bring on the people the disaster that he had threatened, never planned, And so Moses turns and goes down to the mountain with the two tablets of stone in his hands. They're inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing, that was the finger of God engraving his word on stones. But when Moses comes down the mountain, he hears shouting in the camp. It's not the sound of victory It's not the sound of defeat, verse 18. It's the sound of dancing, verse 19. And we're not just talking about normal dancing. I've actually heard of preachers who, when they get to this, stop and for 30 minutes talk about the evils of dancing. That's not what the text is talking about. This is wicked dancing. 
There's some, there's some good dancing because in the scripture people are dancing to the Lord and it's acceptable. This is that same immoral dancing that we read about earlier in the text. This is the people out of control, verse 25. The people that had become a laughingstock to everyone around them. Moses hears this. He sees the calf in the camp and sees the dancing. Verse 19 And in anger, he throws the tablets out of his hands, breaking them into pieces at the foot of the mountain. And now you've got the covenant of God broken. Which means what? The covenant is null and void. This is very symbolic. This is very important. It's as though God no longer has to fulfill his word because we sin and judgment is coming on us. That's what the law says. You sin, you die. And the covenant is broken. It's rendered null and void. And the people, what is going to happen to them? When Moses gets down from the mountain, verse 20, he takes the calf, he burns it in the fire, grounds it to powder, scatters it in the water, and makes the Israelites drink it. You say, why? To eliminate the idol and for the people to identify with their sin. Then he says, verse 22, to Aaron, what were you thinking? Or the end of verse 21. Why did you allow this great sin? And Aaron says in verse 22, don't be angry, my Lord. You know how prone the people are to sin. (laughs) What a response. When God came to Adam and said, did you eat of the fruit? What did Adam say? I'm sorry, Lord, I confess I did. He said, that woman over there, start with her. That's where the problem began. That's where you got to go. And Aaron says, hey, it wasn't me, it was the people. They're prone to evil. Start with them. Aaron said, all I said You know, they said to me, verse 23, make us gods that will go before us. This fellow Moses, we don't know what's happened to him. Verse 24, so uh, I said to the people, whoever has any gold, take it off. They gave me the gold, I threw it in the fire, and poof, out comes this calf. That's the way you and I often justify our sin. Extenuating circumstances, Lord, I'll blame everyone but myself. So Moses calls upon anyone who's going to be faithful to the Lord, verse 26, to step forward. The Levites rally, and they go through the camp with a sword, and 3,000 people die. Maybe the ringleaders, we don't know for sure. Sin does bring death. Verse 30, Moses says, I've got to do something about this. You've sinned a great sin. But I'm going to go up to the Lord and perhaps make atonement for your sin. And so Moses now intercedes a second time and talk about him being like Christ. Moses goes back to the Lord and said, oh, what a great sin the people have committed. They've made themselves gods of gold. Verse 32, but now please forgive their sin. And if not... Blot me out of the book that you've written. 
the book of life. Metaphorically speaking, every person's name is written in a book. And when they die, the, book is, the name is taken out of the book of life. And then there's the, the Lamb's book of life that records all of those who are true believers in Christ. Moses is saying, Lord, I don't want that me being the head of a new nation thing. If you're going to judge these people, let me die for them in place of them or let me die with them. Blot me out of the book of life. The Apostle Paul said, I want Israel to be saved so strongly. I'm deeply in sorrow, unceasing anguish in my heart. I would be willing to be condemned, cut off from Christ, if they could be saved. Wow, that's passion. But you know, this is exactly what Jesus did for us. Here's the gospel. We had sinned and broken the law of God. Hanging over our head was judgment. Nothing but judgment. We had broken the covenant. Rendered null and void. Cannot be saved. Lost forever. And Jesus steps in as our mediator and says, Let me be blotted out. Let me be condemned. Let me die for their sin that they will be forgiven. That's the gospel. The reason why he can do it is because he's better than Moses. He's God in the flesh. He brings redemption. I like what is written in that beautiful song, Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off thy guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. And my name is written on his hands. He ever lives above for me to intercede. His all-redeeming love, his precious blood to plead. His blood atoned for all our race and sprinkles now the throne of grace. Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him. Oh, forgive, they cry. Don't let this ransomed sinner die. And the father hears him pray, his dear anointed son. He cannot turn away the presence of his son. His spirit answers to the blood and tells me, I am born of God. And now my God is reconciled, his pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh. And father, Abba, father, That is the gospel. People still worship the bull today. I think one evidence of that is what you see on Wall Street. Bull's probably a little bigger than what they had in Exodus 32. Some people worship money. Some people worship people. Some people worship themselves. Few people are wholehearted after God. You say this isn't about us? Let me close by turning your attention to 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10. You've got to see this. It says in verse 1, I don't want you to be unaware of what happened to our forefathers. 
the people who passed through the cloud and passed through the sea. They were baptized into Moses and in the cloud and in the sea. It's referring to the Exodus. Moses led them through the sea and through the water. The cloud went before them. They all ate, verse 3, the same spiritual food. That's the manna. They all drank the same spiritual drink. That's the rock of Rephidim where the water came forth. And that referred to Christ. But notice verse 5, 1 Corinthians 10. With most of them, God was not well pleased. And the reason or the evidence of that, their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Did you know that Exodus 32 talks about God punishing the people in time? And that none of those people ever made it to the promised land? All of them died in the wilderness? These things, verse 6, are examples to us. For the purpose that we shouldn't lust after the evil things like they did. And become idolaters like some of them did, verse 7. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That's a quotation right from Exodus 32. So look at verse 11. And look at verse 12. I have it on the screen in the New Living Translation. It says, all these events happened to them as examples for us. Object lessons. They were written down to warn us. Those of us who are living at the time when this age is coming to an end. So if you think you're standing strong, be careful. Why? Because you too may fall just like they did into the same sin. Exodus 32 warns us of the consequences of sin and presents to us in a beautiful picture the glorious gospel of forgiveness in Christ alone. Let's pray. Lord, I'm so thankful that Moses was a faithful steward, a faithful servant in his house. That he didn't give up on the people of Israel. And we know that Christ will never give up on us. Moses was willing to die on behalf of the nation. Jesus did die. Was condemned on the cross. And is alive now. Lord, we are thankful that in Christ we have total, complete forgiveness. But let us be warned of the fact that having trusted Christ... If we fail to follow Christ, Lord, we will have to endure the consequences of our sin as well. Not to the place of losing salvation, but to the place of losing blessing. Keep us faithful. Let us be warned. In Jesus' name, amen.